0: It would be really great to see some trend analysis some dashboard you know some uh community if you could drill into a local community you could see results i mean so much of that information you have at your in your you know databases somewhere it would be wonderful to see some analytics done on that stuff
1: well and, and we will do analytics on it the data will be used to support our regulatory determination. That's the whole reason for UCMR is, let's look at the data and then make a determination about whether we should regulate these chemicals. And um, so we'll be using that data, we'll be sifting through it, we'll be analyzing it, and so that we can make a determination about whether or not we should be regulating that. Remember, they're unregulated currently.
0: Welcome to the environmental transformation podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader solving complex challenges and providing solutions within the respective areas of expertise. And Here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at www.shawnkgrady.com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady, and today's guest is Bruno Piggott. Bruno is the Deputy Assistant Administrator for the U.S. EPA and of the Office of Water. And the Office of Water works to ensure that drinking water is safe, that wastewater is safely returned to the environment, and surface waters are properly managed and protected. You know, before Bruno joined the EPA, he held multiple roles at the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, most recently serving as the Commissioner of the agency and the Chief of Staff and the Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Water Quality. He started his service career as the Chief of the State Revolving Loan Fund Program in Indiana, and Bruno holds a Bachelor's Degree in Political Theory and Economics from James Madison College at uh, Michigan State University and a Master's Degree in, the, in public, Environmental and Public Affairs, from the Indiana University of um, Environmental Public Affairs. So, Bruno, welcome back to the show. The Great last weekend. time, yeah, the last time when we had you on the show was almost two and a half years ago.
1: It's hard to believe it's been that long. I know
0: you were you were navigating the pandemic. You were navigating the idem through the pandemic, transitioning to working from home. And, uh, man, that was a big challenge for you at the time, if I recall.
1: Yeah, as it was for everybody. You know, it was, a, it was definitely a big challenge for the workplace. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we're through it and people are getting back to uh, some semblance. Although, you know, our workplace has changed as a result, I think. Isn't um, that right? Yeah, a lot more remote work than ever before. Um, and uh, workplaces are, are adapting.
0: How's that happening? I mean, how's that look at the EPA level there in Washington, D.C.?
1: Well, it, it's the same as it is in, in many other places. There's an ability of a lot of folks to work uh, from home. And right. for for some people, it's it's really, especially people in labs and research roles, that they're going to be in the office. But for a whole host of other people, the, the workplace has become a much more flexible workplace. So people yeah. are in and out. Uh, 3 days a week let's just say that they come into the office um and it's a time where you're doing a lot of in person meetings which actually I think is a really good thing so right. it's been um it's been a, a great transition to this new kind of format and I think we're going to see a, a a more flexible workplace um at least that's what we're doing right now
0: yeah we we see the same thing here in the private industry and and you know I think we're all being uh aware of the challenges of, of what COVID's brought to uh, our work life. And I think most companies are adapting quite well with this uh, kind of flexible work schedule. It's great. I, I'm, I think it's good. I think we're realizing we can be sustainable working from home, more sustainable and uh, you know, still being productive. So it's a good you, thing.
1: You know, the one thing that I think we do miss that, that is worth commenting on, you know, this conversation we're having right now, yeah. it's a, it's kind of a free-flowing conversation. When you're on a, te- a typical Teams meeting in, a, in the workplace, I think that there's less opportunity to have a free-flowing conversation where you might be able to talk about issues that are kind of tangential to the one you just met about, but but really you get a lot of work done. So the the, the in-person component, I think, is critical still to being collaborative and working together. But I think we're figuring out what the balance is between the in-person collaboration and then the remote work stuff. And we'll settle on something going forward, but I'm (laughs) not the smartest guy to know exactly how that's going to shake out.
0: Well, that's good. That's good. So, all right. Well, let's dive in. Tell us, uh, you know, what is your, you know, what, what, what's your new role like, you know, tell us a little bit about the difference between being the commissioner of an agency, a state agency, and now you're the, uh, you know, the deputy assistant administrator of Office of Water.
1: Yeah. So I'm the deputy assistant administrator in the Office of Water. And uh, what it means is I'm part of the senior staff at US EPA. I work with the assistant administrator who's Senate-confirmed uh, appointee to the role, um, and um, I, uh, I, I work on the wide range of issues that we're facing at EPA in the Office of Water. What What's different, or one thing that's different, is I work at an agency now that is about 16 times as big as the agency I worked in previously. There are 10 uh, regional offices across the nation. Then there are 10 um, offices of research and development across the nation in addition to that. And then there are 10 laboratories around the nation as well. So it's a pretty... Uh, It's a pretty big organization. you got about 16,000 people who work here. And um, the role that I have in this agency, which is is big and has a a nationwide impact, is in the area of putting together kind of our uh, regulations and um, our guidances that then are implemented by states and our regional offices. So in the the job that I had working at the Department of Environmental Management, we really implemented um, the federal regulations. That is, we put them in place in writing through our rulemaking process at the state, but then we carried them out in writing permits um, and doing all of the work of um, putting in place enforcement and inspection and and, and permitting. And, and here in Washington, D.C., we're more about setting the guardrails, writing the rules, um, and, and then providing the assistance to uh, states and uh, entities around the country.
0: Yeah, that's a different perspective of understanding, you know, where you play into the whole mix of, you know, governance or, implementing you know EPA protection or, or you know, environmental protection. so that's got to be a challenge just l- learning the differences uh, I'm sure. Um, you know what is the mission of the Office of water manager or of the Office of Water at the EPA right now?
1: Well it, it fits within the agency's larger mission which is ultimately to protect human health and the environment. We do that in a number of ways. We're, and, and our focus is of course water quality. We do it to we we work to ensure that we have clean water, that uh, the efforts we make reduce the environmental risks based on the best available scientific information that we put in place and implement uh, or or interpret the federal laws that are uh, designed to protect human health and the environment and that we administer them and enforce them fairly effectively and as Congress intended. Um, and environmental stewardship is integral to policies concerning human health, economic growth, energy, transportation, all of those areas. And to do that, we develop and enforce regulations. We give grants out to states and, and entities. We study environmental issues. And I was referring to our Office of Research and Development. They really are our focus on studying environmental um, issues. And we also engage in partnerships, partnerships with a wide variety of folks from the private sector to uh, folks in not-for-profit and environmental organizations and industry. We also do some teaching of environmental uh, consciousness around the, the country, and then we publish information. Those are the big the big things that we do to carry out the mission in the office of the so, water.
0: So oh, that's, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of uh, responsibility. So what are some of the big agenda items that the, the office of water has at the EPA?
1: Well, we, we have a number of big um, items that we've been working on and uh, I'll talk uh, about a number of them. Um, one of the big ones that we've talked about, well, well, So first of all, it it pays to to talk a little bit about where we've come from. This past year, we've celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. And um, during that 50 year period between the inception of the Clean Water Act and today, we've done a lot to improve the environment. We put in place secondary and tertiary treatment techniques um, uh, that have been employed by municipalities Combined sewer discharges have been addressed through technologies and tunnel. Water reuse has become a common strategy for meeting water needs in the West. Green infrastructure has become an integral part of treatment. And so today, 50 years in water and wastewater are so much more advanced than at the beginning of the Clean Water Act. We've had so many laudable Clean Water Act successes over the past 50 years. Um, And I've been lucky to be able to travel around the nation and and see them in action. And so the question is, what are we doing moving forward? And there's several um, uh, big agenda items we've been working on. Most recently, we've been working on PFAS. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that states really led the charge when it comes to PFAS. But I'm here today to report that EPA is doing more than has ever been done at the federal level to address these forever chemicals. Just uh, last month, we took a key step to protecting drinking water from PFAS with a proposal of a national drinking water rule for PFOA and PFOS. And as the lead federal agency responsible for ensuring safe drinking water for Americans, we're leveraging the most recent science and building on existing state efforts to limit PFAS to provide a nationwide health protective level for these specific PFAS and drinking water. And, and so what we're doing is proposing to establish legally defensible levels for six PFAS known to occur in drinking water. And, and the proposal we've put out there, it will regulate PFOA, and PFAS, PFOA and PFOS as individual contaminants, and then we'll regulate four others, PFA, uh, P- four other P- PFAS, PFNA, PFHXS, PFBS, and Gen X chemicals as a mixture. And if finalized, this new rule will result in less PFAS in drinking water across the US. And, and, and we believe prevent thousands of deaths and tens of thousands of illnesses. We're in in a process right now of putting the rule out and getting public feedback. So we're really interested in the folks who watch your podcast to take a look at that rule and provide comments to better inform our rule, which we hope to conclude by just the end of this year. And we're not just setting new standards We're helping communities meet these challenges. And you remember, Sean, in the past when new requirements were added to everybody's plates, they were rarely funded. and and the words, unfunded mandates were always on the lips of every state and municipality. But today, thanks to President Biden's leadership and the bipartisan action in Congress, the bipartisan infrastructure law, provides an unprecedented $9 billion to invest in drinking water systems impacted by PFAS and other emerging contaminants. We're, we're also working, we've got a whole PFAS uh, roadmap, if you will. Right. And, and so that drinking water standard is just one piece of it. We're working on PFAS and biosolids. Bio we're we're putting together um, an NPDS permitting uh, memo that we've actually sent out to to, um, our regions uh, about the NPDES permitting program and what can be done to address PFAS discharges. Um, And so PFAS has been a really big issue. Another big one is lead and copper. We're working hard to improve the lead and copper rule revisions that were established in the last administration. The lead and copper rule improvements rulemaking aims to faster and further protect citizens from lead and drinking water and simplify what is admittedly by all accounts a confusing trigger level, action level, notification requirement system that's currently in place. And then we're also working to ensure funding is available to states that need it to address this issue. We just uh, issued a a new revised formula for distributing money through the SRF program designed to ensure that the states that really need those dollars can get them. So those are some of the regulatory things we've been working on. Of course, I can talk uh, about (laughs) the billions of dollars that we've been distributing through the state revolving fund program um, to ensure that we make progress updating our water and wastewater infrastructure. Fully half of those dollars um, are available as grants and fully forgivable loans. Uh, and as you mentioned at the beginning, Sean, I worked in the SRF program when I first worked at, at um, the Department of Environmental Management. And during that time period, I can remember looking at the needs we had over a 20 year period and realizing we just didn't have enough money to meet those needs. Never in the history of my 25 years working in the environmental arena have we had as much money devoted to making water and wastewater infrastructure improvements as we have today. So uh, that's that's the good news. We, that's we're, that's encouraging. Yeah, that's really yeah. good. That's really good. I mean, there's here. a whole host of other things I could go on and on about.
0: Oh yeah. Well, if I don't stop you, I don't think I'll get a word in edgewise. So oh, let me no. <laughs> so let me let me dive in here because you covered a lot of really great things here. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cascade Environmental, the only field services contractor with the experts and equipment to support you from project conception to completion, even when it comes to PFOS contamination. Their field personnel are experienced in the stringent protocols required for pfos related drilling. Their proprietary Waterloo app system can support the most complete delineation of PFOS contamination in soils and groundwater. And now their thermal team is preparing for their first field demonstration of thermal PFOS treatment. If you'd like to learn more about Cascade's PFOS delineation and remediation capabilities, contact them at www.cascade-env.com. That's www.cascade-env.com. You know, I just recently saw that... um, You know, there's a big push uh, here in in Indiana and I'm sure it's in other states as well to to, you know, really help communities replace their lead pipes, you know, that are being used as service, uh, you know, supply lines and stuff. You know, I think uh, this has created a huge focus with the EPA and other states, especially around like, you know, Flint, Michigan was a huge issue that popped up. Um, And that wasn't probably a big surprise because I'm sure there's a lot of other communities just like Flint that's out there. Um, that are struggling to like address like how do they actually, repl- you know, go about replacing all these financially? It's a major lift, right? Um, you know, are there? You, know, you talked about the state revolving funds having more money than ever before, but you know, wh- how fast can that money be actually deployed to local communities who need it? Um, and, and and or Maybe not every, uh, there's some probably non governmental agencies as well, like, you know, that are privately run uh, utilities that, you know, are supplying large communities that also need help because of the old infrastructure that they've adopted or taken over from, you know, utility, you know, a municipality before. So how does that, how's that going to work? And how fast can people get this money?
1: Well, the good news is money's already been delivered to states across the country. Okay. We've devoted, We've distributed more than $4.9 billion through the SRF capitalization grants to all 47 states, six tribes, and territories. And uh, so we're working um, to ensure that that money is made available. And even more specifically, that there are specific pots. So those communities that have a need for lead service line replacement, not every community has one, but for those that do, that they have an opportunity to get it. And if they're disadvantaged communities, that is to say they've just, some some communities either just don't have the technical, the managerial, the financial capacity, and, and getting through that loan application process is a big lift for them. So yeah. we're providing um, $100 million, $150 million in technical assistance. Just so to help.
0: Get those grants written for them, you know, yeah, maybe hire a contractor a or somebody to do that for them, right?
1: Exactly. Let's yeah. get them in the system and help to fund this. Um, and so money's available. It's it's out there today. And um, we we know that it it's not a one-shot deal. 2023, we've got money out the door. 2024, 2025, and 2026. And each distribution of funding that we send out uh, states have a two-year period for delivering those dollars to communities throughout their states. And I will say, and, and uh, the SRF program in the years I've worked has been just a tremendous resource for uh, communities. As I mentioned, fully half the funding is for grants or forgivable loans. But the other half of the funding is at rates that are better than market rates. And these days, with marker rates going up,
0: fluctuate. Well, yeah, that's a good thing. It's that's really good. important. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, I think that's where uh, a lot of the local, you know, states are wanting to help these communities. And and, and as long as that money is sitting there, that's going to really help them advance uh, these these the, this infrastructure getting replaced. I, I really like that. Um, you know, you talked about the proposed PFAS drinking water limits that are you know been released for those six compounds. You know what has been the initial feedback from you know public utilities or the regulated community or environmental groups so far? I mean, because it's only been out for about a month now, right?
1: So, any any feedback so far? Well, um, initial feedback from some was, "What took you so long?" You know, I was going to
0: ask that question next.
1: (laughs) Right? I mean, uh, it's been it's been several years. (laughs) Ten or so, (laughs) easy. Yeah, and, and so there was a recognition. And I will say, as a state director, I participated in a lot of conversations with my friends from Michigan, who's been in the lead in PFAS, yep. um, as well as other states that already put in place standards that require their uh, both their wastewater dischargers and their drinking water systems to do stuff to um, to do this and, and and to 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 address PFAS. And not only that, but uh, state states have gone out and, and tested their systems to try to figure out well how much PFAS is in our systems, and and organizations like the Ohio River Sanitation Commission have already been out in the waters trying to get a sense of what the ambient um, water is like in terms of PFAS levels. So yeah, a, a lot of states were said said to us, well, it, it's time. It's good that you finally coming out with this rulemaking. Uh, um, Other reactions uh, across the board. Um, There is a recognition that the the numbers that we've come out with, which is um, level of detection, uh, four parts per trillion is lower than uh, probably any of the other um, uh, standards that are out there today. There's also a recognition that over time, science has given us a better understanding of the effects of PFAS uh, on our, uh, our systems, our, our human systems. And therefore, it's important to regulate down to those levels to ensure that the drinking water that people are consuming um, is, um, is clear from this. And there are technologies available to uh, put in place to, to deal Treat with. Treat it. This. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you I mean, this stuff.
0: Yeah, it's, it's no sense in creating a, 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 you know, a cleanup level that can't be achieved uh, through treatment technologies. And, and, you know, today, I mean, it's a, I mean, I, I've been looking and reading and, and watching this unfold over the past few, you know, year and a half, two years now which, with everything that's really happening around PFAS. But it's really been going on for quite some time, as, as we kind of mentioned. I mean, you know, um, tell me your, your take on did you see the movie Dark Waters? You know, I did not. I, Are you I, kidding me?
1: Yeah, I, I just. I just. You,
0: you, Bruto, you have to watch that movie. I think your eyes will be uh, quite open to um, some of the uh, realities that, I mean, it's a true story. So you're going to get a perspective of this in, in a way that might really impact
1: you, I think, in a, in a positive light. Uh, I think I'd really highly recommend it. Well, I will watch it just because you asked, and because it's uh, slightly embarrassing to say I haven't when so many other people have.
0: It's I, it's fantastic. Um, um, you know, we actually had um, Robert Bellat, who's the attorney, on the show,
1: uh, and
0: it was just he was um, just fantastic. Um, you know, the efforts that he has put into protecting you know, local citizens and from exposure, uh, have been remarkable. Uh, you know, he, I mean, to me, he needs a, a Nobel peace prize, uh, you know, provided, given to this man for what he's done, uh, to support the, the, the cause here. But, you know, there's a long period of time that, you know, the actual epidemiology data has been out there and, and, you know, I'm glad that the EPA has finally come out with these rules or these proposed, uh, levels, um, I'm not sure that you do you feel like we could go and add more to this as far as more chemicals uh, uh you know there's thousands and thousands of these chemicals out there. I'm curious what is the EPA's uh, pers- you know approach or perspective of just having six. Do they think if I just get six I'm going to get a whole bunch of other ones in the mix if I'm just monitoring for six or or if I have to treat to that level I'm going to be treating all the other ones out as well. I mean because there are a lot of chemicals that we don't know a lot of information about yet right and and i think um i'm just curious what epa's approach is to just only doing six for right now
1: two two thoughts one is we want to make sure and we're required to as part of our uh, rulemaking process to ensure that the science is pointing this out so that any regulation we put in place is defensible and for those six we feel we've got great scientific Um, evidence that shows that we need to treat at the levels that we are um, putting in the proposed rule. But if so that's one thing. The other thing is, as you mentioned, when you treat for PFAS, oftentimes you remove more than one type of PFAS. And that's kind of reflected in the regulation that we're proposing. So we understand that the technology that's used to treat for PFOS removes not just PFOA or PFOS, but a variety of other PFAS as well. So we're expecting that we'll capture more as we treat. The third um, thing, and, and so that was a really important insight, Sean, that, that this, is, this technology will remove more. The, uh, the other thing is the way we structured the rule. PFOA and PFOS are are regulated individually. But then we've got the four others that we're regulating as a mixture. So it'll be easier um, as the science progresses and as we understand more to, I think, add that all the other constituents in as we go. And we believe we'll be treating for those other compounds with the technology we've got Uh, that we put in place um, at systems around the country. So um, a a variety of reasons that we're starting with six. Science first, uh, follow the science, follow the law, make sure you're defensible. Then secondly, we know the technology will remove it. And third, we're building a rule in a way that helps make it possible to add others as we learn more.
0: Well, that's kind of what I was getting ready to ask. Is this new proposed rule going, once it's in place? Because eventually, you know, it will become a rule uh, at yes. some point, you know, once you get all the feedback and you evaluate this, will it, will there be a mechanism to be able to add new compounds that are become, you know, uh, um, you know, that we that we become aware of, right, that are more toxic or things like that, that are going to have uh, uh, negative effects to add them to the rule in a, in a more, more quickly, uh, you know, expedited fashion, so to speak, instead of this protracted review process?
1: Well, um, I won't promise that there won't be a review process. Um, Well, sure. (laughs) And the one thing I've learned is that the process is extensive um, and there's good reasons for that. And, and that's all defensible, but yes, the idea would be that when we put in place this system, that, we'll be able to do this more expeditiously than we might otherwise do because we'd be adding to the mixture, if you will.
0: Some of the, uh, you know, little, uh, I guess, less talked about uh, aspects of the proposed rule that can kind of strike me is that, um, you know, there is this uh, concept of if, if PFOS is a, uh, a, you know, a toxic, uh, not a hazardous waste, but a listed toxic uh, chemical as under CERCLA, how does that affect the treatment disposal process of the media for the the end users of you know that are processing and treating these chemicals out of the out of the water whose responsibility is that going to rely you know be you know to to do that effectively i mean do you envision also pfos chemicals becoming you know hazardous wastes in 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 a way like you know down the road right now it's not but boy that's a whole snowball effect of new additional Regulatory implications for for operators and 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 managers of, of these types of chemicals.
1: I expect that these these issues will require us to think about how we're we're dealing with this. We're finding PFAS in just about yeah, every place. look, right? Right. Um, right. And and you're right. Um, the 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 question is, what about PFAS and biosolids? What about the land app of uh, biosolids? Right. This is- a major way of disposing bio the, yeah. of our biosolids and, right. and it's critical for municipalities to be able to do this land application. And we recognize that, which is why we're going to be working with our partners. I talked about partnerships in the beginning, um, uh, it, the partners at the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, the, the municipalities that are tasked with cleaning our water to think about the effects of PFAS and biosolids and figure out, well, what's the best way to move forward with those things? I think it will take us all working together to think through all of the possibilities because we've got a list. I mean, we've got chemicals that have been used and, and used effectively in so many different ways in, in the country. So Yes, it w- there are there are implications in a wide variety of areas. As as you know, we've already dealt with PFOS or, or been thinking about PFOS and firefighting foam for goodness sake. And in Indiana, for example, they've collected PFOS-laden uh, firefighting foam and, and they're disposing of that. Um, and so th- there has to be substitutes in place, and there there are a lot of issues to work through. Um, but but we're starting to tackle that. And, and one of the big things to tackle that Michigan's already been working on, for example, is, is let's go to the source. You know, what, what, what's, what are the sources of PFAS that are being discharged into our wastewater systems? And let's see if we can work with those, those entities to reduce their loadings of PFAS into our wastewater systems on the front end so that the biocells don't contain that information. That's the ultimate way to address this. In Michigan, they had electroplating facilities um, where, um, where they identified PFOS loadings and they've worked with those systems to reduce the loadings of PFOS into wastewater treatment plants. And so we're going to need to take a whole of agency approach toward PFOS from our Office of Land and Emergency Management to water to uh, air and, and other areas to figure out how to deal with this in a way that Um, It doesn't transfer the problem from one entity to the other.
0: Did you know E-Tank is the only environmental rental equipment company in the industry that offers a 100% certified clean guarantee at no additional cost? Well, this gives customers the peace of mind knowing that container contents from the previous renter isn't going to cross-contaminate the contents of the current customer and potentially cause liability concerns. You know, E-Tank also provides a -a one-of-a-kind complete maintenance program for all its rental items, including liquid-tight roll-off containers, fluid transfer pumps, and filtration systems components. To learn more about the types of containers and pumps E-Tank supplies, check out their website at www.etank.net. So the next time you are faced with an environmentally challenging project, give eTank a call to help solve your problem. It's just that easy. I mean, I definitely commend the EPA for getting this, this new rule out, this proposed rule for the MCL. This is fantastic. Are you guys in also in the planning stages of, you know, submitting a new proposed rule for wastewater discharge? Uh,
1: we, we don't have a rule in process now, but we did recently come out with guidance for states and, and uh, a, 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 to say, here are the things you could do that would help with this. And one of the identifications was the Michigan system of working with their pretreating uh systems. The other was, yeah, you could put in place limits, in, uh, and and here's how you could do it. And here are the mechanisms that would be legally defensible. So, so you push it to the, the states,
0: pushing it to the states, to let them implement the uh, the actual limits under their MPDS permit process, and, and give the control a little bit to them to, to help manage the exposure in the and waters it, of the state.
1: Yeah, and at the same time, we are, of course, working on water quality standards, and we'll be doing that. Um, as well for, uh, for PFAS and PFOA. So a variety of tools.
0: Are there, are there anything else, any other little nuggets in, in the proposed rule that you know, we should be aware of or hadn't really talked about that's important to, to well, for
1: some For some who work in the municipalities, they're going to look at it and say, wow, four parts per trillion, that's so low. How are we supposed to comply with that when that's the level of detection? And what's the, what's the way that the agency's doing that? One of the things I was really proud of was the fact that the agency thought about that. And um, they, first of all, um, they're going to put in place requirements for monitoring, but that for communities that have already been monitoring for PFAS under the UCMR and, and other ways, they'll be able to use that data. So they won't have to reinvent the wheel. That's one thing, which right. will help reduce costs. But the other is that compliance will be based on a rolling annual average and um, and anything that is listed below uh, the four parts per trillion will count when they do the uh, analysis and the the uh, uh, analysis of compliance in a way that doesn't just automatically throw a municipality into non-compliance with this uh, with the regulation so I'm really proud of the fact that we thought through, how can this be um, effective for um, a, a municipality that's putting in place the treatment to deal with this stuff?
0: Yeah, you, you got to feel for these guys, to be honest with you. They're not the ones who are causing the problem. I mean, yeah. let's, you know, and here's my, my biggest, I think, frustration of a lot of this is the fact that We're going to we need these facilities to improve their treatment capabilities, so the consumers are not exposed. But at the end of the day, what's happening is, is those costs are getting passed down to the consumers to deal with this, you know, treatment technology and, and infrastructure that needs to be built to support, you know, safe drinking water all the while. Who the polluter is not getting penalized, or at least uh, you know having to pay for these things at the moment right now, and I think most people in a lot of the communities are really struggling with this whole process, and and why you know like big companies like you know DuPont and Cumors and those guys who are you know and who and others right I mean there's others right they're not being they're not being required to pay for these type of upgrades for these local communities at least in a way that seems you know fair.
1: Yeah. And, and let me just say, we, we recognize that and that concern. And and, and that's why partly why under the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law, we've got a devoted uh, dollar amount for these, um, ad- allowing our drinking water systems to put in place these technologies. So there's money available, number one. But number two, there's a recognition that you're right. The Where's the part that the polluter Ha, has in this and therefore we are looking at pollution the polluters and dealing with that with our different mechanisms enforcement in particular um, to ensure that the polluters do pay and that the cost of compliance isn't just shifted onto our residents as they um, a, a, as it has in in other situations where you know, new treatment has to be put in place.
0: Yeah. I I just feel like that is the, I guess, the travesty of the the situation where we see, I mean, granted, I love the fact that the infrastructure bills, you know, allocating lots of money, millions and millions of dollars. I mean, I kind of looked at the allocation uh, distribution for FY 22 and 23 for, you know, these emerging contaminants for disadvantaged community, you know, allotments and it's great. I mean, you know, Indiana is getting 26 million dollars, it says here and you know and, and a lot of the, it's all broken down. It's really great information and it's great to see that these communities are getting funding. but I just scratch my head and go, wow, but the, those polluters are not really paying what's for, for the damage they've caused and the exposure to human health and environment. Um, and, and And you know there's a lot of cancers and things like that are being caused by these you know acute and/or you know chronic exposure. You know, it's like wow. What are we gonna do? I mean, I really like to see the EPA ramp up enforcement actions on some of these polluters.
1: Well, we're determined to do that, and we're determined to address that concern, which is a legitimate one, to ensure that we take action where we've got real evidence that um, many that that uh, that there's been um, a, a, a polluter that's caused the, these problems, and, and you know. Um, I will say um, PFAS is ubiquitous in our environment. It's in the water, it's in the land, it's in a variety of other areas. So you have to make sure that you appropriately engage the enforcement tools that you've got in a way that's defensible. But that's what we're going to do.
0: Well, like if it's listed in CERCLA, under CERCLA is a toxic you know, chemical there. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of these chemicals out there. Uh, if we only have six, there's a lot of, you know, thousands that aren't going to be listed that won't be quote-unquote, attributable to enforcement action. Um, I mean, I think the sooner that, you know, the agency starts to add these chemicals to the list, it's going to ease up or it's going to make, I think, enforcement action easier for, you know, these polluters, for you guys for with polluters, because it, currently they're still like unregulated, right? Isn't that the big challenge? That's right.
1: That's, that's exactly right. So um, that is definitely the challenge. That's why we're trying to get this rule out there before the end of this year, and that's why we will use um, the existing framework to put in place as we get better science on the others, uh, put them into the mix. And then we can take the enforcement action that that we need to take to ensure that it's not just the citizens that are paying for improvements to their water quality, but the polluter that caused the problem also is required to come up and, and help pay.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's good to hear. Um... You know, how does the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule, the UCMR, work? And should there be more PFAS chemicals added to that list? I think currently there's like 29 on that list now. And so my question with that, you know, monitoring program for drinking water, you know, utilities and, and municipalities is, do they, is that a, a quarterly monitoring program? Is that a, a annual monitoring program? Is it, you know, what are the parameters around, when samples are collected to, you know, to be submitted for evaluation, um, you know, in this program. And just so that way you guys can start uh, understand and track, you know, hey, we have an impact in these communities with these types of PFAS.
1: Yeah. Let me start with the, the big picture. Um, what What is this whole rule? Because a lot of people uh, are not aware. But as part of the, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, EPA, has to implement, um, implement a section of the act that requires a monitoring program for unregulated contaminants, and it requires that once every five years, we issue a list of priority unregulated contaminants to be monitored by certain public water systems across the states, the tribes, and the territories, mm-hmm. and and these contaminants may be present in drinking water, but are not yet subject to EPA drinking water standards. Under this rule, EPA collects representative drinking water occurrence data to support our future regulatory determinations and assist in the development of national primary drinking water regulations like the proposed PFAS rule. Right, right. And, And for each cycle, right now we're working on UCMR-5, For each cycle, we establish a new list of contaminants um, for monitoring um, and and specifies which systems are required to monitor, identifies sampling locations, and um, defines the analytical methods that uh, we are to use. And and the administrator at the end of 2021 signed the, the fifth uh, revision to the unregulated monitoring contaminated contaminant monitoring rule. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, so what, what systems are going to be uh, participating in UCMR 5? Um, so this is the way it works. EPA ha- must require all public water systems serving between 3,300 and 10,000 people to monitor and ensure that a nationally representative sample of systems that are serving fewer than 3,000 monitor, 300 monitor for contaminants in in future uh, cycles. So anybody serving a population of more than 10,000 people, we call that a a large system, (coughs) are responsible for participating in this program. (coughs) Excuse me. We anticipate... A third of all systems will collect samples between 2023 and 2025. And um, if we don't uh, receive the appropriations we need uh, in a given year, we'll reduce the number of small systems that will be asked to perform monitoring. So uh, the way it looks right now is um, in terms of small systems, those are fewer than 3,300. We'll have 800 systems that collect samples. Uh, the, 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 the Somewhere in between 3,300 to 10,000, we got about 5,000 systems that'll be collecting uh, samples. And then large systems of 10,000 and over, will be looking at 4,364 systems. And there's uh, uh, a huge uh, bunch of PFAS chemicals that we'll be looking at. Um, we'll be collecting samples at entry points to the distribution system at a water system. Does that how make sense?
0: often? How often would that happen? Is it once a year, twice a year, quarterly? What, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. Um, the, uh, the systems must monitor four times during a, a consecutive 12-month monitoring pe- period. Okay, and and the events must occur three months apart.
0: Okay, so quarterly—that's um, good. That's good. I mean, that that gives yeah. a representative seasonal fluctuation. Uh, that's you know, I think representative of the, you know what the normal drinking water intake would look like. That's good. Now, um, I
1: should I should clarify, Sean. That's for surface water systems or. Groundwater systems that are under the influence of surface water, but groundwater systems are a little different Those systems monitor two times during a consecutive 12-month monitoring period and, and we can guess why, right? That the answer to that is, well, it's a groundwater system That the the kind of seasonal changes that you see in surface water aren't as apparent in, yeah. in a pure groundwater system
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense, that makes sense, okay Okay If you're listening to this podcast, I'll bet you may be thinking, how can I level up and advance my career? If you want to get that promotion, increase your regulatory knowledge, gain professional recognition and earn more money, then it's time to obtain an industry credential from the Institute of Hazardous Material Management. The IHMM offers eight credentials that are ANSI approved for students, experienced, skilled employees without a degree, and for the degree professional looking to set themselves apart from the pack. Their credentials focus on three main areas, Certified Hazardous Material Manager, the CHMM, the Certified Dangerous Goods Professional, the CDGP, and the Certified Safety and Health Manager, the CSHM. If you become an IHMM credential professional, then you will be in the top 1% of your profession and your credential will have a global reach. Check out their programs they offer at www.ihmm.org. That's www.ihmm.org. What are you waiting for? Get started today. Well, that's good to hear. So, so the UCMR five rule that's out now, it's got about 29 or, or so PFAS chemicals. I mean, it was funny. It was like, they were all PFAS chemicals except lithium. So that was, that was like, okay, you guys are really going all in on, on those contaminants that are unregulated. Um, you know, I think when this data comes back to you guys, I mean, are what type of like data analytics are you guys running on all this information? Cause One of the things I was looking at on the website, on EPA's website, is that you guys are collecting so much data, so much data, that I believe, you know, geez, it would be really great to see some trend analysis, some dashboard, you know, some uh, community, uh, if you could drill into a local community, you could see results, I mean, so much of that information you have at your in your you know, databases somewhere, it would be wonderful to see some analytics done on that stuff.
1: Well, and, and we will do analytics on it. The data will be used to support our regulatory determination. That's the whole reason for UCMR right. is let's look at the data and then make a determination about whether we should regulate these chemicals. And um, so we'll be using that data. We'll be sifting through it. We'll be analyzing it and so that we can make a determination about whether or not we should be regulating that. Remember, they're unregulated currently. And then um, in addition to that, the results from the UCMR are stored in what we call our National Contaminant Occurrence Database for drinking water, um, which is good because that means that the public can go uh, take a look at that as well. And then in addition to that, there's a public notification rule that requires that all systems notify their customers of the availability of the results from this data no later than 12 months after the results are known. So we use it for our regulatory determinations, but the public can use it as well. And um, we'll do the, the analysis necessary to determine whether or not we need to regulate these things. But the co- consumer, it, it, I think it kind of empowers them to say, oh, wow, look, we, we do or don't have these contaminants in our drinking water. Yeah, I mean, affected
0: communities now that don't really have the the treatment utilities that are really treating the the contaminants of PFAS at, at levels that, you know, would be safe, Um They're relying on those public utilities to to provide that data publicly somehow, just to see is it safe this month or how how's the treatment plant really operating? Uh, Do I still need to drink bottled water? I mean, there's all those kind of concerns, And, and I think more of a real time access to the data that people could you know like glean, like the 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 you know the concern
1: the exposure concern would be really I think helpful for citizens. No, I think you're right about that. And and not only um, is that important uh, for citizens, but also how do we get it out to citizens? And as I mentioned, the community water systems are required to um, notify the customers of the availability of this, but also they're required to report these results in their consumer confidence report, which I mean, some people don't pay attention to, but other people really do, Um, even when those unregulated contaminants are detected. Um, And I will say we're also working on our consumer confidence report rulemaking. And one of the things that we will be doing on the consumer confidence report rule is ensure that drinking water systems don't just report it once a year, but do it twice a year so that any changes in the system can be identified for residents in the system and, and they understand better w- what their drinking water's like
0: yeah no yeah that's 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 great um i mean i'd like this that would be fantastic i'm you know i, I do a, a bunch of you know digital work now uh, in our practice i uh, in my business that i'm working for and and so we're all about data analytics and doing high level trend analysis of data and and I see this as a huge opportunity for the EPA and and work with partners to maybe help them get that information out so
1: well it's um, it's critical data analytics is critical for you guys and it's critical here at EPA we we must understand what what the data looks like in order to put in place the regulations that we, we put in place and, and because they've got to be defensible. We can't just throw a right. number out there. Right. Um, and so we have a group of people um, within the Office of Water called our Office of Science and Technology. And those folks do analyze the results. In addition to that, they work with our Office of Research and Development. I will put in a shout out for our friends at um, the Office of Research and Development's um, location in Cincinnati, Ohio. They do a lot of work on, uh, on lead. For example, okay, um, and, and then we've got um, we got a location up in Duluth, Minnesota, as well that does a lot of water work. So the, you're absolutely right. Data analytics and trend analysis of drinking water is such a great thing to emphasize, and and we must do that in order to defend the rules that we put in place.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we create dashboards for our customers and trend analysis come in and they can see the operating systems and that's the kind of stuff that really helps make decisions and helps operators manage their business. And so I think just having that data for consumers to see too would be so valuable, but, um, I want to, I want to pivot another question here for you. Just, you know, we're on this topic about the new proposed rule. Um, is the EPA considering establishing classes for the PFAS chemicals, like PCBs, are, are, are kind of you know the precedents kind of set it that way you know set up already in a way, you know to account for some of these long chain, short chain type um, you know variants of the of the various you know PFOS chemicals to really help protect
1: our citizens. And yeah, we're doing a lot of thinking about that, Sean. I think it's a, a an insightful question. And we are thinking about that, and that's part of the reason for the structure of the rule as is with the mixtures. Yeah. Uh, aside from the first, the PFO and PFAS, that that helps um, establish that, A- and that that class um, is certainly something we've been thinking through.
0: Gotcha. No, that's good to hear because I think it could help, you know, manage this 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 situation. More effectively yes. down the road. I mean, there's so many of these these types of chemicals. How do you really cover it all, right? I mean, what if we say, hey, you know, add these up, get your total. Now you got a problem. You know, you know, now you need to start treating. I mean, I think that could be a really good, effective way to to address some of this. Although, you know, let's let the science and and you know some of the smart kids in the in the room to kind of figure this out. But I really feel like that could be a good option for.
1: People. Well, and, and that's essentially what our mixtures um, uh, provision does in the rule. It, it's exactly that. It, it yep. assigns uh, a numeric uh, value, um, not based yep. on the. But it, and there's an an interesting formula in the rule that, that helps it. to do that for that mixture.
0: Yeah, and, that was good. So that's,
1: yeah, that's kind of cool.
0: You're kind of laying the groundwork in a way. You yeah, know, yeah kinda, that's kind right. of. That's that's, that's kind of what I, I kind of took out of that. Um, so that was really good. Um, let's see what else did I have for you. Um, do you feel like I mean you know hey fifty billion dollars for the bipartisan infrastructure bill? There was like five billion allocated to small disadvantaged communities. Uh, you know, is there enough funding to uh, go around for all the states and you know to address all the issues? Do you think or well, do we need more?
1: It, it, I. I will, as as a person who understands the needs out there, uh, acknowledge that there's always um, more that we could devote to this. Yeah, I will say, I'm blown away. This is, I've never seen so many dollars devoted to this. When I was in Indiana, the typical cap grant that we got through SRF was 18 million dollars for drinking water and 32 million dollars. For wastewater projects on a yearly basis. This this is so much higher than that. I know that we have needs to, we'll we'll soak up that money. There's no doubt about it. And we'll want more for sure. And I, I just, I understand that the challenges that communities face will be tough and that it will come at a cost um, to ensure that we have safe and clean water. Um, and part of that cost will be will be paid for through the, the money in the bipartisan infrastructure law. And then the, the communities will, will chip in. And then we hope the polluter pays, helps with the PFAS stuff. Um, is there enough? There's never enough. Um, but um, we've made a really incredible down payment.
0: No, it's really great to see that, uh, you know, the EPA and, and Congress have, have allocated this this uh, bipartisan funding for these types of uh, projects. I mean, they're so so needed. I mean, you know, our our infrastructure, uh, you know, for wastewater and sewers and things like that. And in, in, in around our, our country in a lot of locations is just, you know, it's so outdated. It's, you know, 100 years old or more Some in some places or, you know uh, or they're just challenged. Like, you know, it's, it's been 1950 design and, um, you know, things are breaking down and now the capital costs are more than the tax base that, you know, can even fund to fix it. Cause you know, things have happened. Right. I mean, dad, those are real issues. I think most of, uh, some of our communities are facing. So it's great to see that you guys have put together and and, and uh, with the Biden administration, put this together. So kudos to the EPA and, and Congress for, for that. Um, really appreciate all that. Um, Well, Bruno, you know, hey, what else is there? I mean, we've covered some good ground here. Super excited that you came on the show today. I mean, I don't know where else we can go here. I mean, we could probably get into some weeds if we needed to, but we might want to, you know, pause for a second and and I'll I'll let you, you know, give a parting shot to uh, the listeners.
1: Well, let me just say this, Sean. There's a lot more work we're engaged in. We've talked a lot about PFAS. We talked about lead and copper. Um, w- one of the things we didn't talk about was waters of the United States. That's a rulemaking we just finished up in, at the end of the year. We're looking forward to a Supreme Court decision in that matter. But we're also working in a, a wide variety of other areas. One of the big things that's going on is climate and, and the trying to figure out new ways to sequester carbon. And, and we're at the forefront of that as well in the Office of Water because we issue Uh, what we call Class 6 well permits to facilities that want to sequester carbon underground. So we are working to do that. And we just um, put out a rulemaking that will give Louisiana primacy over the Class 6 program. We are also uh, working, uh, as I mentioned, on the consumer confidence rule. Um, uh, We've got a number of ELGs we've been working on. We issued A proposal for steam electric ELG. We're uh, we're coming out with nutrient uh, trading uh, ideas. Uh, We'll be uh, coming out with a proposal sometime next year for uh, microbial disinfection byproducts rule. There's just a whole host of things that we're working on. Um, And um, there's so many that you know, it can make your your head spin a little Yeah.
0: Oh, I can imagine. I think one thing we didn't touch on is, you know, circular economy and water. Uh, You know, from the sustainability perspective, you know, what are the initiatives that EPA is going to push or promote for recycling, reuse water? uh, You know, uh, there's so much to, I think, you know, to manage water more effectively. uh, You know, so that seems to be, a big area that uh, a lot of our clients uh, are also asking us about, you know, how do we, you know, address circular economy in the water space.
1: Yeah, and and, and in the west, water is a very resource,
0: Yeah,
1: right? We've read about the Colorado River. I know that states in the west are working to deal with the water shortages and and reuse water. And I've been out to California where I've been um, lucky to be at uh, groundbreakings for water reuse projects that takes treated wastewater from one treatment plant and sends it to the reservoir for drinking water in another and then super treats it to ensure that we reuse the water in a way that's effective and conserves water as well. There's desalination issues. There's just a whole host of issues. And it's at the forefront of folks in the West. How are we going to deal with the, the lack of water? We've got, you know, this past winter, California, um, it got yeah. a lot of, uh, of snow and, and that's helped, but still water issues will remain in that state so creative thinking will have to be done in order to deal with the water availability uh crisis in california and arizona i mean think about this sean the number of uh, uh, cities that we've got that are in areas that are really deserts arizona nevada california is those those communities are growing rapidly um, yeah we will come to grips with how are we going to best provide the water that's necessary for residents, for industries, and and for the economy in, in those areas as well. It's a big deal.
0: It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Well, Bruno, hey, thank you for coming on to the show today. Thank you for, you know, having a great candid conversation with me. Uh, kudos to you and, and to DPA, EPA and all the hard work you're doing there. And we're looking forward to uh, you know, how this new proposed rule gets uh, implemented and, and finalized and, and uh, how uh, you know, the, 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 um, the lead pipe replacement supplies that, that you know, gets uh, enacted and, and supported through local communities. So thank you for coming on and really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. It's great to see you and look forward to our next chat.
0: That's right. We'll do it again soon, hopefully. Yep. That's yeah. great. All, All right.
1: right. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Bruno. I want to thank our guest, Bruno Pigott, for coming onto the show today. If you have questions for Bruno and want to learn more about what the EPA is doing to protect human health in the environment and the waters of the United States, you can check out their website at www.epa.gov or you can email Bruno at pickett.bruno at epa.gov. We'll also put a link to his contact information on my website. To listen to future Environmental Transformation podcast, you can check us out on all the major podcast networks or from my website at www.shawnkgrady.com. Remember, don't forget to follow us and we'd really appreciate if you would write a review for us about the podcast. It also helps increase our podcast placement in all the podcast networks. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Thanks for listening, and until next time, make a positive
1: impact in someone's life today.